It is 1838, and the good Reverend Herbert Beaver is bitching about the stale beer at Fort Vancouver. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of Kick-Ass Oregon History, When Oregon Was British. This is a dual-purpose podcast. First, this broadcast is the typical, lively, straight-shit podcast you've come to expect from us. Listen to it at home or on your daily Naked Bike commute, or tuning out the tweakers on the number 12 bus ride. But one of the other things we do at Kick-Ass Oregon History, besides arousing your ear hole, is conducting entertaining historical walking and bus tours of the Beaver State. You can check out a schedule of our upcoming tours and purchase tickets at orhistory.com. So, we also decided to release this podcast as a self-guided tour of one of the Pacific Northwest's greatest historical treasures, the National Park Service's Fort Vancouver, located in the Couve, dude. So head across the river, slip an Oregon microbrew or craft bourbon in your jacket pocket, and join us on our kick-ass tour of Fort Vancouver when Oregon was British. Ladies and gentlemen, ass kickers all, the ghost host of Kick-Ass Oregon History, Mr. Andy Lindbergh. Went out walking through the woods the other day And the world was a carpet laid before me our tour of Fort Vancouver continues today in front of the bakery. Descriptions of the meals enjoyed at the fort vary a great deal depending on one's social standing with the company, of course. Officers from the Hudson's Bay Company would be treated to nearly regal meals, while a voyager in the brigades might just have fucking hardtack or salted meats and whatever else could be hunted or foraged. Guests to the fort often reported sumptuous meals served in an almost stately fashion, as this 1836 accounting by Mrs. Whitman describes. There is such a variety I know not where to begin. 
For breakfast we have coffee or cocoa, salt salmon and roast duck, wild, and potatoes. When we have eaten our supply of them, our plates are changed, and we make a finish on bread and butter. For dinner we have a great variety. First, we are always treated to a dish of soup, which is very good. Each kind of vegetable is used, taken and chopped fine, and put into water with a little rice and boiled to a soup. The tomatoes are a prominent article. Usually some fowl meat of any kind is cut fine and added, then spiced to taste. After our soup dishes are removed, then comes a variety of meats to prove our tastes. After selecting and tasting, change plates and try another if we choose so. At every new dish we have a clean plate. Roast duck is an everyday dish. Boiled pork, tripe, and sometimes trotters, fresh salmon and sturgeon, yes, too numerous to mention. When these are set aside, a rice pudding or apple pie is next introduced. After this, melons next make their appearance, sometimes grapes, and last of all, cheese, bread or biscuit, and butter is produced to complete the whole. Another visitor, Nathaniel Wyeth, described his winter at Fort Vancouver in the early 1830s as being spent eating and drinking the good things to be had there and enjoying much the manly society of the place. In September of 1834, Reverend Jason Lee wrote that the dinner was as good and served in as good style as in any gentleman's house in the East. Five muskmelons and watermelons were set before us, which were indeed a luxury after the dry living we have had for some time. The members of the fur brigades ate quite differently, of course. They received weekly rations on Saturdays, which were often starches such as biscuits and potatoes and protein such as salmon. Other items could be purchased from the company's store, and foraging was also necessary for more than just sustenance. Christmas or New Year's might present an occasional present of flour, molasses, or grease. Yes, I said grease. Just another example of the wide disparity at Fort Vancouver, a theme that will be a review at many turns on your tour today. Now, while they are in the field, the fur brigades were often without food entirely. Accounts have been recorded of eating the soles of moccasins and horses, while necessary to carry the beaver pelts, could quickly be filling the menu. See, wouldn't you prefer eating a big old chunk of fucking grease instead of a moccasin sole, dear ass kicker? With that in mind, take a big old sip of that malted beverage and let's talk liquor. Dr. McLaughlin was not known as much of a drinker, although on occasion he did partake of alcoholic beverages. He also did not support supplying the native peoples with alcohol as a trade good for the obvious effects the libations had on those communities. This policy was not set in stone over the 20 years of our survey, but more often than not, alcohol was not one of the trade goods that was transacted for furs. Nonetheless, liquor, wine, and beer were important aspects of the history of Fort Vancouver. McLaughlin seemed to have established the first microbrewery in the Oregon Territory as well. 
After planting two bushels of barley in 1826, 27 bushels were harvested, one half of which was kept for seed. According to some accounts, small quantities of beer were to be expected in the Sandwich Islands in 1829, which was brewed on the Columbia. Unfortunately, the official records do not contain references to the result of the brewing project. Reverend Herbert Beaver seemed to indicate that brewing was not taking place when in 1838 he reported his desire for a good beer which might be easily brewed as there is ample supply of barley and hops. But it wasn't just beer being made at Fort Vancouver. One of the Hudson's Bay Company clerks, John Work, wrote that distilling whiskey has been going on all winter. That being the winter of 1833 through 1834. Another clerk, George Roberts, wrote that in the early 1840s, As the American traders on the coast sold liquor to the Indians, the company had to do the same. A saving of freight and objects so that we tried to make the whiskey as bulky an article here. We had three stills at work and made good whiskey from barley, but it was given up owing to the bad effect on the men. After this point, about 1836, liquor was kept under lock and key at the fort and distributed in pints to the men for specific events that occurred throughout the year. When they entered in service with the company, when the brigades left the fort, when they returned, and at New Year's. Some were entitled to a wine allowance, eight gallons per year, although it seems that this allotment was not always strictly observed. As a noteworthy example, Reverend Beaver consumed 225 and one-half gallons of wine in two years. Reverend Beaver did complain of the stale beer and the small wine and spirit allowance and the fact that he could not be permitted even to purchase more. But desperate men will resort to desperate measures. A former assistant to David Douglas reportedly brewed up a concoction called the Blue Ruin, mainly from molasses. In one famous example, an inebriate named Thornburg stole a two-gallon jug of whiskey from J.K. Townsend. Townsend was an ornithologist, and he had been touring the West collecting rare reptile specimens. Townsend recounts that Thornburg had decanted the liquor from the precious reptiles that I had destined for immortality, and he and one of his pot companions had been happy upon it for a whole day. I will be your knight in shining armor, coming to your emotional rescue. You will be mine, you will be mine, all mine. You will be mine, you will be mine, all mine. Now it's time to take our tour south to the blacksmith shop. Often reenactors are working the forge, manufacturing tools, nails, and spoons in the exact fashion as they would have in the early days of Fort Vancouver. We will take this opportunity to talk about the, quote, normal people at the fort who would have appeared much like the blacksmiths you will encounter today.
The Hudson's Bay Company did have a building in the stockade for employees and some visitors called the Bachelor's Quarters. Frenchman Eugene de Flotte de Moffre recorded in 1841, Every evening the employees assemble in a room called Bachelor's Hall. Here they smoke and discuss their adventures, journeys, and skirmishes with the Indians. One tells how he was reduced to eating leather moccasins. Another bursts of such expert rifle shooting that he aims only at a bear's mouth to avoid damaging the skin. Often Scotch airs will be varied by old French-Canadian tunes when the French spirit of gaiety grips these hardy highlanders. But most of the employees of the company who were not of officer's rank lived in the village, also referred to as Kanaka Village. Established in 1829, or possibly earlier, the village housed the vast majority of people in the Oregon Territory employed by the Hudson's Bay Company. It provides us with a unique opportunity to explore how normal people lived, the trappers, the millers, the smiths and the carpenters, their wives and children. It is important to remember that perhaps only a few score individuals lived behind the walls of the stockade, and the vast majority, possibly up to 600 during the 1840s, lived in the village. Millwright William Crate provided us with almost a demographic snapshot when he noted in 1843, In the lower town was a street for Canadians, one for Kanakas, what the Hudson's Bay Company called servants from the Sandwich Islands, or Hawaii, based on the Hawaiian word for person, and one for English and Americans. Most of the English and Americans were spotted around, above and behind the fort. He further described the dwellings by noting that some of the houses were built Canadian fashion of two or four inch planks. Some were built American cottage fashion, framed and weatherboarded. Some were of squared timber, and some very few of logs, and some few of sawed slabs. The houses were generally one story high, and some of them one and a half, plastered of clay. Hal Kelly was another period commentator who has left us his recollections of the village. Kelly was a pretty fucking odd fellow 
who claimed to have ruined his eyesight by reading the entirety of Virgil by the light of the moon. Brought to the Northwest by heavenly vision, he dressed outlandishly in a white slouch hat, blanket capote, and leather pants with a red stripe down the seam, which caused enough notice for Dr. McLaughlin to journal that Kelly was rather out tree, even for Vancouver. In 1834, an ill Kelly recorded his thoughts on his accommodations in the village when he wrote that the house has one room with a shed adjoining, the latter having been long occupied for dressing fish and wild game was extremely filthy. The black mud about the door was abundantly mixed with animal putrescence. It was not a place that would have conduced much to the recovery of health. With an equally disapproving eye, American Joel Palmer in 1845 noted that the village was occupied by a mongrel race living in dwellings as various in form as the characteristics of their inmates. Up to 30 different Native American groups were represented, even including the Iroquois. English was by far an underrepresented language in the village, and it is likely that Chinook jargon or French were the most common languages. Governor Simpson commented on the polyglot nature of the operation when he wrote of a journey down the Columbia. He penned, Our crew of ten men contained Iroquois who spoke their own tongue, a Cree half-breed of French origin who appeared to have borrowed his dialect from both his parents, a North Briton who understood only the Gaelic of his native hills, Canadians who of course knew French, and Sandwich Islanders who jabbered a medley of Chinook and their own vernacular jargon. Add to all of this that the passengers were natives of England, Scotland, Russia, Canada, and the Hudson's Bay territories, and you have the prettiest congregation of nations, the nicest confusion of tongues that has ever taken place since the Tower of Babel. To add just a little more spice to the melting pot, there are several accounts of Japanese at Fort Vancouver. The National Park Service has made a decided effort to showcase the village. They value the story of, air quote, normal people and the opportunity to park visitors to make almost personal connections with those types of stories found in the village. The thought of the MPS is that there's kind of a standard of universal concepts understood by all people. Examples would be life and death, work and leisure, uh, fundamental experiences and motivations like these. The idea is that by exploring the everyday lives of everyday people, we in the 20th century can make a connection to those universal concepts that bridge these epochs. Now, there's nothing wrong with the thrust of the National Park Service, of course, but there are two problems with this approach to our application today as you toured the fort. The first is that the majority of the villagers were illiterate, so without primary documents to construct their stories, such as letters, journals, etc., the Park Service has to rely on other methods, such as archaeological digs and studying other aspects of what is called material culture the collecting and sifting of trash, as the resident historian likes to say. The second problem is that today there's really nothing to see in the plain to the west of the fort, the location of the village. The Park Service has constructed a few structures, uh, one a replica of a Canadian-style house called the Engage House, 
and they're worth a look. There are plans to make more constructions, but as we're all aware, historic sites are low priorities for the feds who are busy with multiple wars to fund, debt to default upon, and healthcare to defund. As it stands right now, it would make a fairly boring audio tour. So at Kick-Ass Oregon History, we decided to focus on the physical structures of the actual fort itself, and hopefully interweave stories of this rich, multi-ethnic past, the village, into the narrative. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for the final episode in our three-part tour of Fort Vancouver. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug K. Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historian. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you. Visit orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And be sure to join us on our historic Halloween show on October 31st, 2013 at 8.30 p.m. at the Jack London Bar. Historians Joe Strecker, Finn John, and our own resident historian Doug Kent Crispin will spin true tales of horror, murder, and mayhem of the Pacific Northwest. There will be a costume contest with prizes, live music, and three burlesque dancers to help us pass the evening. It's a kick-ass Halloween party that you won't want to miss. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on Halloween night 2013. Just don't get too close to Mr. King Crispin. He has been abundantly mixed with animal putrescence. You stay historic, Oregon. And kick ass!
She's like a